Hello and welcome everybody to BIA's Leading Local Insights podcast, where we focus on the trends, technologies, and activities driving the local media advertising. I'm Tom Buno, CEO and founder of BIA Advisory Services, and I'm here today with a good friend and colleague, Jeff Smolian. A longtime leader in the broadcast industry, Jeff has just authored the book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, and it's a fantastic account of his, his career, life in radio and television ownership, and the advent and future of streaming, what it means to an entrepreneur, and a lot of personal stories and learnings along the way. Jeff, by way of introduction for those that don't know him, Jeff has a law degree from USC, but always wanted to get into radio ownership. He started with a small radio opportunity in Indianapolis and parlayed that into one of the premier radio groups in the nation, as well as ownership outside the U.S. In addition, Jeff had ownership of a sports team, the Seattle Mariners, and owned a number of TV stations. So, Jeff, you and I have both been entrepreneurs for over 40 years. The only difference is that you have had some unbelievable successes. As I said, the name of the book is Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, and I've read it now three times, and I would recommend it to anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur or is interested in the behind-the-scenes story of the radio and television industries. On top of it, you laced it with your self-deprecating humor, which made it especially enjoyable. So let's start with a quick overview of the startup years and how you grew your company. It seems to me that your success to a large degree centers around assessing opportunities, doing research, and then repositioning your acquisitions. I would like to discuss three radio plays in particular, K-Power 106 in LA, Casey in St. Louis, and WFAN in New York. So Jeff, let's start with K-Power and how it came about and what led to its success. Um. And Tom, thanks. And by the way, the only difference between you and me is I'm an entrepreneur because I'm not hireable in a free society. (laughs) I know you well enough to know you were hireable by anybody. Um, (laughs) You know, power was our, our, was our, actually third acquisition. We bought it from Century Broadcasting, the Grafman family. um, And and I, I had looked at Los Angeles and loved it and said, boy, this is the best radio market in the world. So when they originally offered us St. Louis and San Francisco, we pushed to switch San Francisco for LA. We put it on the air and, and we, we inherited what was then Magic 106. It was an adult contemporary station, wasn't doing very well. Uh, and, and we originally, when we looked at the market, said, boy, there's a coalition format here um, that would be a coalition between young Hispanics, which are the largest demographic group in the area, young blacks and sort of suburban white young people. And we thought about it and we said, well, it's doing adult contemporary. And we know um, we know adult contemporary, we've done it in Indianapolis. And so we said, well, let's do that. We brought in Robert W. Morgan. We did it for about 16 months. It really didn't take off. And we said, look, this isn't, you know, we've got a lot of adult contemporary competitors. This is a station that we think should be reinvented. So we, we basically built the format around that coalition. Um, Jim Riggs, who did the research for us, said, uh, I, I think this is a winning coalition. And Rick Cummings, who's headed our programming since the day we started the company, um, put it together. Um, we had a consultant named Don Kelly, 
uh, who had done a somewhat similar thing in, in Philadelphia, but not really. Uh, it was really targeted to that audience in Los Angeles, largely Hispanic focused. And uh, and it just, it, it took off. Um, the coalition was right. The music was right. Programming was right. And it's one of those rare moments where everything hits. Um, and I'll never forget, um, it, it had gone on the air, I think, I, I know exactly, the middle of January of 1986. Um, and after about 10 days, Rick said, I'm starting to hear this thing everywhere. Um, yeah. And the first trend, there was a little blip. The second trend, there was a bigger blip. And the third trend, I'll never forget, I was given a speech in Chicago. Um, and Doyle called me with the ratings. And I was just ready to walk on stage to give a speech. And he said, we had a six share for the book. And I said, Doyle, that's mathematically impossible. To have a six share for the book, you would have had, just off the top of my head, I said, you would have had a 10 share for the last month. He said, well, that's what we had, 10 share. Wow. And I remember being my typical, you know, wise ass self said, Doyle, if that's true, I'm really too rich to talk to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I mean, and then and, and that's sort of the, always the Emmett style. And it, and it took off as one of those great joys. Um, yeah. in, in the book, I talked about how, the, how important radio was in people's lives. And I know when I started school at USC in the 60s, KHJ had come along. And if you saw the movie recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that radio station was a soundtrack of that movie. Um, and you couldn't go to an intersection and roll your windows down without hearing KHJ. That largely became the case with Power 106 in LA those days. Yeah, well, that's that's a great story. The one that I, I wanted to talk about next was also fascinating to me, and that was Casey. Right. Uh, Casey in St. Louis was already on the air, was was had a following, and then you guys came in. Yeah, Casey was one of the most fun projects we've ever had because Casey was a radio station that everybody knew. Uh, it had a, a fanatical following. Um, of people that most other people thought were living in the basement uh, of their parents' homes uh, and unemployed and basically only ventured out at night to rob liquor stores. I think that was the <laughs> perception of the audience. And we just had more fun with it. Um, we brought in Rick Bayless to program it. We said, Rick, here's number one, we got to make this music more palatable. Don't play the 12th cut on the Rolling Stones album or the Led Zeppelin album. Play the hits. Um, and, and we joked about Rick, you know, make it palatable. And Rick said he heard the word palatable so much time he'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming palatable. Um, <laughs> and we inherited a, a, a mascot, Sweetmeat. Um, and Sweetmeat was the pig from an old hard heavy metal album. It was, it was the pig on the cover. And he, and he had a joint in his mouth and he had a stubble of beard and he had a ring in his nose. And you talk to listeners, they go, oh, sweet meat. I love sweet meat. And then you talk to advertisers and you say, how am I going to buy time on a station with a pig with a joint in his mouth? <laughs> um, so we, we cleaned up sweet meat. We built it. We built a costume and we put aviator glasses on him and obviously took the joint out of his mouth um, and sent him around every hospital and every event in town and made sweet meat a good guy. Um, Stuart Lane, who was with us then, I think I, I didn't know till years later, actually stole an ad campaign from Rolling Stone magazine, um, Perception versus Reality. And the perception was they showed a, a, and it was then and now, and they showed a picture of a woman who looked like, you know, she had been on the road as a groupie for Grateful Dead. 
and then as a teenager, um, and then showed her now, and she was a leading surgeon. Um, and it said, you know, Mary Smith, then I was a Casey listener, and now she's a Casey listener. Same thing with a guy who looked like he had just blown up the federal building. And, <laughs> and, and now he, he's a respected judge. You know, John Jones, Casey Lister then, Casey Lister now. So the idea was to bring this into the mainstream of the advertisers. And then we did an ad, an ad campaign, which I always loved, called You're Never Too Old to Rock and Roll. And we had a guy in a suit and tie, and he walks in, and he says hi to his wife and his daughter. And then he goes into his study. And he closes the door and he turns on the album and you know brown sugar is playing by the stones and he does air guitar <laughs> his tie and he's doing rock and roll the daughter walks in and sort of peeks in the door and sees him and and um and goes and gets the mother and says mommy's doing it again and the mother says doing what again and they walk to the door and they peek in and there's he, the, the husband you know this obviously business guy in his suit and tie you know playing air guitar and the tagline is KC95, you're never too old to rock and roll. So yeah. it really made the station palatable. Uh, and it was a great success. And I, I laughed. Uh, we owned it for 30 some years, just sold it to Ginny Morris and Hubbard. And the station's still first or second in the market. I'm very proud of what we did at KC. Yeah, that's that's just a great repositioning story. I mean, I yeah. just love that one. Really and then the is. last one I wanted to, to talk about and, and get your thoughts on was K-Fan. And this is right. one of the greatest stories in radio from from anybody's perspective, because yep. no one had a format, a sports only format when right. you launched it. And then you guys did a, a ton with it. And really, yep. uh, it's it's one that everybody points to. So let's yeah, talk about I, FAN. FAN was uh, it, WFAN was was our station. Um, we inherited when we after we had done St. Louis and Los Angeles. Um, we bought the AA stations, and they had Wave in Washington and what was then WAPP in New York, um, and then it had WHN, and WHN, the, the, the tagline was America's Most Listened to Country Station. And while that was true, because there's more people in New York, WHN was about 25th in the market, so it was an also ran. Mm-hmm. And it also had the Mets, and so... We, we made the FM station Hot 103.5, which became Hot 97, uh, and Wave up, we built out in Washington. And we were debating what to do with the AM. I had had an idea when I was in college, not paying attention in the class to do all sports radio. And I mentioned it, and it was sort of my baby. I loved it. I loved the idea and thought, look, AM radio is only going to be information. Uh, you've already got two all-news stations in WCBS and WINS. And you've got two talk stations in WABC and WOR. So if you're going to be information, what the heck, might as well do sports. And it was roundly laughed out of the building in our manager's meeting. Um, we took a vote, Rick, and, and the vote was that we would not do it. Um, one of my dearest friends who started the company with me, Steve Crane, um, said, what do you want to do? And I said, you can't lead where people won't follow. We're not going to do it. And the next day, Rick Cummings and Doyle Rose, who then was running our head of our radio group said, look, we're doing really well everywhere else. Um, we still think it's a stupid idea, but we owe you one. We'll do it. As long as we don't have to manage it, we don't care. Um, and that was the ignominious birth of sports radio in the United States. And we put it on the air. It was a disaster. It was too national. It wasn't local enough. Um, and it was called Smolian's Folly. Um, Jim Lampley, one of our first on-air people, called it the Vietnam War of Emmis. 
Uh, <laughs> and and my friend John Dilly, who you know, uh, yeah. been a dear friend forever. And John said, you know, I used to think you were a smart guy. Then I listened to WFAN. I now know you're really not very smart. Yeah. Um, and so it's and and then we brought in Mark Mason uh, to program it. We made it much more local. Um, and then the key was we also merged with NBC and we moved to the better 660 frequency. We inherited Don Imus. It's a funny story about Don. Don's agent, um, I think it was Mike Lynn, had also been Robert W. Morgan's agent. So I had dealt with Mike because there was always always a fun experience managing Robert W. Um, and I and I said, well, we were debating whether to put Don on. Don had been in and out of rehab for a number of years. Uh, and I said, we got Don in and out of rehab. We carry the New York Mets, who at that time in 1987 were pretty much not only defending world champions, but also the world record holder in drug problems for a, a baseball team. <laughs> yes. And we had a radio station who was losing money. So I said, you had the Mets and Imus and this disastrous economic radio situation with the radio station. What could possibly go wrong? Um, but we put them all together. Imus, as you know, for the rest of his career, stayed sober. He was brilliant. He made a tremendous difference. We put uh, Mike and the Mad Dog on in afternoons, and the whole thing took off. And I, and Tom, I have a favorite saying, the line between being a genius and idiot is very fine. Uh, and I've been on both sides. Um, and the chapter in the book is idiot to genius. And then the next chapter in the book is the Seattle Mariners story, genius to idiot. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was fan. So, you know, the the roller coaster, you know, you had some great res- successes with all the station you own, but the roller coaster really headed to what was going on in the industry. Yeah. So we had, you know, we had the SNL crisis in 1990. We had the Telecom Act of, of 1996. Right. We had, you know, Wall Street abandoning in 2006. You know, right. so you had all of these things going on while you guys were doing great with your own properties, but you couldn't yeah. control the rest of these factors. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And, and, and you know, we, we've had a number of crises, you know, when radio in the in the late 80s had a renaissance um, and everybody loved it. And there were a few entrepreneurs like us. And I used to kid, we used to go to conventions and I felt like, you know, the, the bankers were like groupies. How can we lend you money? How can we lend you money? And then right when we were struggling with the Mariners, um, we had the SNL crisis and all those same banks pulled out of the radio business. So, yeah. you know, the, the banker that loved you on Monday by Friday, not only did they love you, they had closed their portfolio. And in some cases with some of my friends, they called the loans, uh, that never happened to us, but we had a major hole to get out of and we got out of it. Uh, company went public, things went great. The telecom act really changed everything. Um, because in those days, radio, radio always, as nobody knows this better than you, radio grew on a top line level about four to seven percent a year. And in, and in a business with, with the operating leverage you could get, you could usually grow cash flow 10 to 15 percent a year. And that's a wonderful business. And yeah. it was a mom and pop business. And when the government opened up the ability to own more and more stations, Wall Street fell in love with it. And when Wall Street fell in love with it, it just poured money into the industry. And, you know, it was funny because at the last minute of the of the Telecom Act of 1996, uh, radio had always been 
seven seven and seven. You get on seven a.m., seven f.m., and 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 seven TV. Then it went to twelve, twelve, and twelve, and and then and then you got duopolies. You could own two stations in a band in a market. Um, and then all of a sudden, at the last minute, everybody was hoping to go. I think I think it was four stations in a market. You could own up to ninety six stations. Everybody said, "Boy, this would be great." And then at the last minute, it was slipped into the bill. There was no national cap. Yeah. That was, I think that was a deal that Lowry Mays got done with Eddie Fritz and Trent Lott. Um, and, and when he did it, everybody said, well, who'd want to own a thousand radio stations? That's crazy. You can't own a thousand radio stations. Um, but Lowry, but what happened was once Wall Street loved the business, um, it, it changed everything because these companies became public and if the if the standard purchase price was 10 times cash flow and your stock was trading at 11 then when you bought something at 10 your stock went up then then your stock went up to 12 or 13 and you bought stuff at 11 or 12 and it just kept going all the way up and every deal was accretive and wall street loved accretive deals so after a few years especially lowry and mal Carmerson were buying things at 18 times cash flow and their stock was trading at 21 and the stock kept going up. Well, the problem was the economics of the industry never really supported any of that. Yeah. And then you had, and then you had the dot-com bubble where for one or two years, um, top line really did go to 10 or 11%. And then that just exacerbated the situation where people kept throwing more and more money at it. And, and yet what you were left with was companies that had too much debt and when yes. the music stopped and the industry stopped growing, uh, and instead of growing from four to seven percent a year, it's it really dropped to one to two percent a year. Then you had all these companies that had been based on valuations of 20 times, and the valuations dropped, and the capital dried up, and the industry just, you know, basically went on a steady decline. I hope I didn't cover too much ground there. No, no, I mean that's it's fascinating the way that happened. And of course, you guys, you went public during the great years and then you came back and went private when things were going in the other direction so well, we tried to, we tried to go private we never really got that done but we made the attempt um, yeah yeah the uh the other thing i did want to touch on jeff and, and this is something you and i have talked about before was kind of that shiny other object you know yeah. the second source of revenue and in the radio industry there was uh, streaming audio uh, which which I'd like you to talk to first, and then maybe let's get into next radio. Yeah. Well, the the problem was, if you really look, and I think the book was very helpful to me in really tracing where the industry went, and and you can really see that the real growth stopped around 2001 or 2002, um, and it limped along until 2008. I think the industry peaked at about 20 million, 20 billion dollars a year, yeah. um, and it probably stayed there, but didn't grow till about 2008, 2009, when the big recession hit. Then the industry dropped to 17 billion dollars a year, uh, where it had stayed until COVID, and then it dropped another level. Um, the problem with that was that you know you, you people had debt. And they kept looking for ways. How do I? How do I either generate more revenue or cut my costs? The big guys invariably cut their costs by nationalizing programming and 
and and voice tracking. So they had one disc jockey in Dallas and he'd voice track 10 stations. Well, to me, the problem with that was it was you know, a big problem uh, in taking away the localism of the industry. This industry Absolutely. always mattered on Main Street. And then the other thing they did is I got too much debt. What do I do? I had more commercials. So an industry that was really attractive to listeners at eight to 10 minutes an hour is running 16 to 18 minutes an hour. That that hurt the industry. And then the other thing was we got to find something new. So we went to digital. We went to streaming. We've gone to podcasting. And the problem is, um, if you really look at all of them, there's really not a lot of economic viability in any of these things. Digital, you know, there is there is money to be made, but it's a low margin business. Um, and and I, I said the industry went from 17 billion. It stayed at 17 billion from like 2011 to 2019, but but four of that billion was digital. And it was a lower margin business. So the cash flows kept declining. Um, and then they said, what do we do? And everybody fell in love with streaming. We've been streaming audio here since the mid nineties. Uh, I used to do conventions and say, who's made money at it. Um, and because of the, because Mark, of the, Mark Cuban, Mark Cuban's made money at it. Well, yeah, well, and I've given that story cause they came to us, um, the very beginning and where Mark Cuban was a genius was he started broadcast.com. Uh, his partner, Tom Wagner, came to me in the, I don't know, mid, late 90s, mid 90s, and said, you know, here's what we're going to do. We want to stream your audio. We'll do that for you. We'll charge you six, eight thousand dollars a month and we'll take all your commercials. And I said, what do you do with them? He said, well, we sell them and we keep the money. And I said, well, that sounds like a good business for one of us, but not both of us. <laughs> and I always kid my friend Randy Michaels said, if I had listened to the whole pitch, I would have thrown him out of my office. But when they said we sell all the commercials, I said, who's selling it for you? And they said, we don't have anybody yet. And Randy said, well, give me 10% of your business and I'll sell it. So they they did a brilliant job where Mark Cuban was a genius was they, they put this thing together and they absolutely hyped it like crazy. It went public at a billion dollar valuation. Within a year, it was up to $2 billion valuation. They sold it probably another six months later than that to Yahoo for $5 billion, where Mark Cuban was a genius is he took the money, cashed the Yahoo stock immediately, put the money in his pocket. So he became a billionaire. Yahoo shut the damn thing down within a year. Mm-hmm. And that, that $5 billion purchase led to the demise of Yahoo. And it never, it never recovered. And, and I, you know, I always kid that G- Cuban was a genius because he knew there was no there there. The funny story is Randy Michaels, I think JCOR made like $180 million by just owning 10% of it. And he said, we sold their inventory for like 18 months. And I said, what it, with all that inventory? Because my laugh, my joke was, who in their right mind is going to, you know, pay you six, $8,000 a month to manage streaming? They can hire two interns to do that. Well, lo and behold, in our industry, I think they had hundreds of stations who did it, who gave them all this inventory. And and Randy said, we had all this inventory. And in 18 months, the, the grand total of our sales was like $900,000. So mm-hmm. there was just no there there. But it, it was a lot. Wall Street loves what Wall Street loves. And then one day they don't love it. Um, yeah. and we, we've seen it with Spotify. You know, Spotify has never really made any money. Um, the music licensing is too, too expensive. All the other administrative costs. 
So then they've gone into podcasting, and but but they still got a thirty forty billion dollar valuation. Yeah, it's crazy. So I'm not covering too much ground, but no, no, that's that's really great insight. Yeah. You know, the other one that next radio though, that's a story that just you know the industry was so well positioned. I mean, you looked at you know the what was happening in in Europe and Asia. You yeah. know, the FM tuners and cell phones, this would help the radio industry that was uh, relegated to just being listened to in the car. Now you would have portability on your cell phone listening to the stations. It made right. a ton of sense. Right. Uh, the difference, though, was the phone companies in the U.S. versus what was happening in Europe and Asia. And right. they, uh, the NAB came to you and said, lead this challenge. Yeah. And you went out and, and you did it. So yeah. talk a little bit about dealing with the phone companies and how you were able to, to get that accomplished. Well, it's interesting because David Rare came to us and said uh, a group of like seven or eight CEOs were regularly meeting and he showed us a phone with a chip in it from Europe. Um, and it was right at the end of the flip phone era. And we all said, my gosh, this is key. And the reason it was key, Tom, exactly right, is instead of going through the, you know, the streaming service, you had your own transmitter. There was nobody between you and your listener. And you could say portability. And I said, guys, you know, everybody in the country started with a transistor radio. Or then they went to a Walkman or they had a boombox. But in the intervening years, the portability of the industry has gone. And if we can own our own ecosystem and just send it from our transmitter right to our listeners on the, on the obviously the device they're going to live with, um, and then what happened was we went to smartphones and we learned that there was the FM chip. You didn't have to add it on the flip phones. You had to actually add it in. And, mm -hmm. and in the rest of the world, the manufacturers were happy to do that. And I remember when I started, they said, your problem is that in the United States, these phones are sold to the phone companies. They don't they want to control their own ecosystem. So we knew that when the smartphones came about, that every chip had an FM radio built in it but we had to get it turned on. Um, and one of the things we learned early on was when we started, it was to get the FM chip turned on. And then Kevin Gage, who was head of engineering for the NAB said, uh, guys, you're going to have to have a visual system that's compelling because you're going to be competing in phones with visual, uh, compelling uh, visuals. And Paul Brenner of our team said, I can build that. And that was Next Radio. And it really was great. It did everything. You could do everything. You could see the song being played. You could enter contests. You get information on ads. You could get song lyrics. Um, and it was a, a wonderful system. Um, and then it was a question of convincing the carriers. And I, I knew a guy named Larry Paulson, who was a, a former Nokia exec and a Qualcomm exec. Larry was great. Larry said, I think you got to start with the smallest carriers and you got to buy your way on. Um, and as luck would have it, one of the Sprint board members was a friend from Indianapolis. So he got us meetings in Kansas City. The industry agreed to pay $15 million a year, which is a whole nother story um, to convince to, to make a deal with Sprint to put it in 50, 60 million phones. And then once it was there and people saw the system worked and, and consumers liked it, then we, we were a, able to get public service people like Craig Fugate, who was head of FEMA, um, to endorse it because in, a, in a, any emergency, a tornado, a hurricane, an earthquake, the power grid goes out. And when the power grid goes out, the cell service is gone. 
99% of television is viewed through the power grid. So you could have a phone and, and while your phone service is out, you can turn on the radio and that can provide life-saving information. So we had a lot of help from regulators. Um, we ended up putting pressure on T-Mobile. They joined, Gordon Smith was good friends with the head of all public service from AT&T. We got them and then we got Verizon. Um, and we probably would have gotten Apple over time. Um, I had a good friend from the USC board who was also on the Apple board and we, they were the first people we talked to and they turned it down. Um, but the problem was um, we then realized that the commercial load in the industry was really hurting listening. And Paul Brenner came into my office one day, I'll never forget it. And he said, look, I'm comparing listening patterns and we had launched it in Mexico and Peru and Argentina and Brazil and Canada and South Korea. And he said, uh, the listening, when you're running seven, eight minutes an hour of commercials, people stay with you. But when you're running 16, 18 minutes an hour of commercials and they've got options, they'll leave you. And he said, they're captive in the car, so they'll stay, they'll just switch stations. But when they've got other options on the smartphone, and so we realized that we were going to have to do data capture and we felt that if we could capture the data we could convince broadcasters that the value of that data was so much that their advertising would be worth much more and the whole idea was and admittedly it was a it was a tough putt but the idea was higher valued advertiser would allow you to make more money with less commercials and yeah. less commercials would make your product more compelling but it was a challenge in an industry that basically Tom had no, had too much debt and no capital. So I rambled a long way, but no, no, I mean, it's, it, it really is a shame because uh, that's the piece that really could have changed the trajectory of the industry. Yeah. yeah. It uh, would have portability would have changed it and high value data would have changed it and the location base of radio over the air. But it, by that time, I think the patient was, was on life support. Well, Jeff, I, I probably could talk half the day with you about these and other stories. Uh, yeah. Maybe the most important question is now, how can people buy your book? That is an important question, Tom. Uh, it's called Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, or they can type in my name at, at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or whatever, wherever they buy books, Apple, um, and they can they instantly buy it. They can if any human being was willing to listen to me for 10 hours, they can get the audio book. Um, <laughs> but, but if not, um, they can have the book delivered to them at home or download the book on their Kindle or their Apple reader. Well, we're, we're not going to get into it today, but I mean, there's all kind of insights in being an entrepreneur and how to run a, a business that I think are great. And maybe that's a separate podcast, but you know, Jeff, you've been a great friend to me and many in the industry for, for many years, and we're all better for it. I want to thank you for what you've done, uh, and thank you today for being with us on this podcast. Tom, thank you. As you know, uh, you've been a dear friend for a long time, and uh, I, I love doing this with you, and any anytime you call, I'm there for you. Uh, I appreciate that. So to our listeners. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you listening to our Leading Local Insights podcast. Please stay tuned where every week you'll hear compelling interviews and stories from the media industry and insights from the BIA analyst team. Thanks again.